The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. It can be found on page 912 in the Black Bibles. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled them with jealousy that they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and all those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And here we are witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or th this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, as we come to this passage, um, one of the challenges that we face is being able to meditate on it. Um, without seeing it just as a missionary story. And what I mean by that is that our temptation in stories like this one um, is to think of them as stories that are very inspiring but so remote and disconnected from our lives that we tend to think that they have very little to teach us about what it means to trust Jesus and to live as his people in the world today unless we find ourselves in a similar circumstance. And of course, uh, there are modern parallels to this story. We still hear of missionaries living in foreign countries, perhaps under fiercely persecution, who are beaten and thrown in jail for preaching the gospel in the streets, who are then many times miraculously delivered by God. And, and those stories are a powerful testimony of how God is at work in the world today. 
and they are examples of courageous faith. But how does a text like the one we just read speak to us if we're not exactly under the same circumstances? Or perhaps um, a more positive way of framing our quest will be asking, how does this text fit in the bigger story of what God is doing in the world? How is it bearing witness to Jesus? And how is it seeking to strengthen our faith and to equip us for God's mission in the world today? Only as we answer these big picture questions, we will be able to see how these texts speak to us in whatever circumstances or situation we find ourselves in. So with that in mind, let's ask the Spirit for help. Loving God, you provide for our every need. You feed our bodies and our souls, yet we hunger to know and love you more and more. Lord, as we meditate upon your word, I pray that your spirit might give us eyes to see. We want to see Jesus and how wonderful he is, in whose name we pray. Amen. So if you have been here for the, last past, for the last couple of months, or if you're familiar with the book of Acts, perhaps one of the first things that you notice as this passage was read is that several themes begin to sound familiar. The communication of the good news of Jesus is, of course, one of them. We have seen that already several times in the previous chapters, and we will continue to read many more occasions through the rest of the book, sometimes done by the apostles and sometimes done by ordinary followers of Jesus. So that's one recurring theme. Another theme that has already been repeated several times is hostility or persecution against the good news of Jesus and again. His messengers, which is basically opposition against Jesus himself. Chapter 4 speaks about Peter and John being arrested and charged not to speak about Jesus. And then in this story, we read again the apostles being arrested and charged not to teach about Jesus. And in chapter 6, it will be a man named Stephen, the one that is persecuted. But persecution is many times accompanied by another recurring theme, which is the powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit, bringing healing and deliverance, changing the hearts of many and adding them to the church, and empowering believers to speak and to suffer for Jesus. So repetition, it's an important characteristic of the book of Acts. Another important feature is parallelism between Jesus' ministry and the ministry of his followers. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. After all, Luke opens up this book, the book of Acts, by telling us, that, telling us that his previous work, which is the Gospel of Luke, is about all that Jesus began to, to do and teach until the day he was taken up. So the book of Acts is basically part two of the story. It's about what Jesus continues to do in the world now through the Holy Spirit that he has sent to empower his followers. So there is a lot of parallelism between the Gospels and Acts. There are many similar situations that highlight the continuity of the work, like the healing of different men unable to walk, uh, deliverances from unclean spirits, conflict around the, the Jerusalem temple, opposition from uh, religious leaders, we can actually appreciate this parallelism by reading the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts uh, simultaneously. But in addition to repetition and parallelism, we also find newness 
or discontinuity. And what I mean by that is that something unique is going on in the book of Acts. Because if you think about it, the whole story that is told through Acts is happening on Easter Sunday. Now, I don't mean literally on that particular day. I mean on the new age that has dawned upon us because of the resurrection of the Son of God. A 20th century theologian, Oscar Kuhlman, once illustrated this by using a metaphor from World War II, explaining that to live after Jesus' resurrection is living, it's like living after D-Day, the day when the Allied troops invaded Europe and determined the outcome of the war. So in a similar way, we live after the crucial battle upon which the destiny of humanity depended has been already won by Jesus. And even though we are still in the midst of the battlefield, waiting for the final consummation, when we will be reunited to Jesus and when every tear will be wiped away, nonetheless, we are already living after D-Day. Our stories are developing on Easter Sunday. So as we read the book of Acts, we need to keep that in mind. Something new, something unique is going on. Now, in order to grasp better how that should give us hope and, and should uh, completely reshape our lives, I would like for us to explore three things that we find in this story. The first thing is a new understanding of reality. The second is a disruptive way of living. And the third one is actually the power to live that kind of life. So a new understanding of reality, a disruptive way of living, and the power to do it. So let's begin with the first one. I recently finished reading a fascinating novel called Silence by a Japanese author named Susaku Endo. And in this novel, he tells a story of two Jesuit priests from Portugal, Sebastián Rodríguez and Francis Garpe, that traveled to Japan in the 17th century at a time when the country was very hostile to Christianity and where feudal lords or rulers persecuted the few who converted to Christianity and forced them to publicly renounce their faith. Now, the goal of these two priests in traveling to Japan was not mainly to do missionary work, but to find out about another priest, an old mentor and teacher of them named um, Cristobal Ferreira, who had gone to Japan many years before as a missionary, but who had suddenly ceased communications with the Jesuit order in Portugal and who apparently had apostatized or renounced his faith. Now, a great portion of the story is told through the letters that Sebastián Rodríguez wrote along the way that are like his personal diary. And the letters begin with a journey from Portugal to China, and then once they get there, they discover that all Portuguese ships have been prohibited into Japan, so they had to find another way to get into the country. And along the way, they meet a, a Japanese man named Kichihiro, who is, is shifty and an alcoholic, but at the same time, is their best option to help them get there and connect with a group of Christian uh, peasants uh, willing to hide them. So after many difficulties, they arrived to a small town called Tomogi near Nagasaki. And there they ministered to a small group of believers while hiding um, in a charcoal hut just outside the village. Everything seems to be uh, like an adventure at first. And, and things go toler tolerably well, except the cold and the little food they had 
But after being there for a while, Sebastián Rodríguez and his companion decide to part ways in order to try to move to other villages and pursue the goal of finding Cristobal Ferreira. Now, soon after they split, Rodríguez's faith begins to be tested to the limit. Two Japanese Christians he knew from the village are captured by the authorities and asked to apostatize by trampling or placing their foot on a board with the image of Mary and Jesus. Since they refuse, they are then hanged on stakes and left in the ocean so that when it was night, the tide will come in and their bodies will be immersed in the sea up to the chin. And then after two or three days, they will die of exhaustion. But it was only the first of many more atrocities that Rodriguez was about to witness. Once the authorities, uh, the authorities captured him, he was forced to watch many more Japanese brothers laying down their lives, some of them drawn, some others hang in a dreadful punishment called the pit, all because of their embracing of the faith brought to Japan by these Jesuit priests. Now, the main theme of the story is not the new converts' strength of their faith. That's actually a question that runs throughout the novel. You never know if they actually understood the Christian faith at all. The main focus of the story, where you feel the tension as a reader, and of course where the title of the, of the novel comes from, is in the wrestling of the Jesuit priest, Sebastián Rodríguez, with his own faith in the midst of suffering in light of God's silence. Why has God not stepped forward for these young believers? How can somebody's faith be sustained in the midst of such pain? Why is God silent? Now the question that Rodriguez asks over and over throughout the novel is not foreign to many of us. It's probably the same question that the disciples ask on the night when Jesus was apprehended, mocked, and then crucified. It's probably the same question that some brothers and sisters in jail because of their faith in Jesus are asking today in places like Afghanistan or North Korea or, or Yemen. Now, I don't want to equate the suffering of the persecuted church with the trials we face here in America, but I also don't want to diminish our own hardships and struggles. We watch the news and we get a, the sense of a world that is falling apart. To be a follower of Jesus in academia is becoming a very hard task. We feel the pain with our kids who are growing up in a world full of evil with so much injustice, many dangers, and where they are bombarded with all kinds of distorted views of money, relationships, human dignity, or sex. And you might be asking, why is God silent? Or perhaps the wrestling of your faith or with your faith today is even more personal. Perhaps the Lord is not answering one of your prayers concerning your health, your marriage, your depression, or your finances. And you're wondering, why is God silent? Well, he's not silent. He has spoken his final word in the sending of Jesus to overcome evil. The evil in us and the evil around us. And because Jesus came and conquered through his death and resurrection, whatever we're struggling with, whatever is happening around us, it is happening in the context of a new age.
we live on Easter Sunday. Now, what do I mean? Imagine for a second that you board a plane traveling from L.A. to New York City. And in the midst of that flight, you stand up and you move around. It's a long flight. I have never done it, but I read it's like four, five or six hours. And perhaps you go and use the restroom. But as you come back to take your place, um, you fail to remember where your seat was. And you look around and you're, uh, you look disoriented. Perhaps you feel a little bit lost. Well, regardless of how disoriented or disorienting that experience might be for you, you are not lost. You're on your way to New York City. Now, think of the apostles in this story. They're thrown in jail. Then they are miraculously rescued by an angel who sends them back to preach. Then they're brought back again before the council. They're intimidated and charged not to speak about Jesus. Surprisingly, one of the Pharisees named Gamaliel intercedes in their behalf, perhaps unintentionally saves them. And then they are flogged probably with the Jewish punishment of 40 lashes minus one, which, by the way, was so brutal that many people were known to die from it. And then they are released again. They come out with joy, feel that they had been regarded by God as worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus. So arrest, release, arrest, release, arrest, release. Now, as you read this, you might be thinking, why? Why were they miraculously rescued from jail only to be apprehended again? Just like in the last chapter. If God sent an angel to rescue them from prison, why was the angel not sent again when they were being flogged? Why are we able to see the hand of work, the hand of God, I'm sorry, working so clearly sometimes, but other times he seems to remain silent? Well, to have a sense of what is happening in the middle, you actually need to look at the bookends that encapsulate the whole story. If we, were to, if we were to read a few verses before this passage, we will find that what is going on is the Word of God moving forward. People that were sick um, or tormented by unclean spirits are healed. Signs and wonders are taking place. Many people are coming to know Jesus. God's plan of redemption is moving forward. And then if we go to the end of the story we read today, after all the turbulence in the middle, what do we find? We find the word of God moving forward. The gospel of Jesus continued to accomplish its purpose. Now, between these two brackets, there is a lot going on. But that doesn't change the fact that God's plan is moving forward. His word is unstoppable, and therefore his plan is unstoppable. So this story is not just an example of courage or a comment on the growth of the early church. We need to see the big picture here that will give us a true understanding of reality. God is moving forward his plan of redemption to a glorious ending. He is conquering He's bringing about a new creation. He's on the move. He is fulfilling his purposes and nothing will stop him. And if you are trusting in Jesus, no matter how much you struggle at times with your own sin, no matter how disoriented you might feel right now, no matter how silent God might appear to be on certain issues in your life, no matter what kind of persecution you might be enduring, no matter how confusing the circumstances might be, 
you can be sure that he's not silent. And if you're in Christ, you can be sure you are not lost. Now, this leads us to our second point, uh, a disruptive way of living. And let me explain why. In uh, his book, After Virtue, Alasdair McIntyre affirms that particular events can be understood only in the context of a story. Particular events can be understood only in the context of a story. So as he explains, we can only answer the question, what am I to do in any particular situation? Or how am I supposed to live? If we can first answer the question, of what story do I find myself a part? A part, not a part. Because that bigger story is what provides meaning to the smaller stories that we live. So the new understanding of reality that we just talked about, that the Easter story in which we live our lives, the unstoppable plan of God in which we find ourselves, should give meaning and reshape completely the way we live our daily lives. But what does that mean? Or how does it look? Well, on verse 20 of the story we read, the angel of the Lord opens the gates of the prison and led the apostles out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. All the words of this life. Now, of course, that's a commandment to go and preach the gospel, basically, because that's exactly what they, what they do. They go out and they share about Jesus. And then when they are brought back before the council, Peter and the apostles summarize the message by saying, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. So it's the message about Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay, all the words of this life is the message about Jesus. But it's very interesting how the angel puts it here. Because it seems that he's making a reference not only to the message itself, but to the message in relation to all of life. The words or all the words of this life are the words of the gospel, which are also the words that explain, that produce and explain the disciples' new way of living. Now, of course, this shouldn't surprise us because that's exactly what we get to see over and over in the book of Acts. We constantly get a view into the way the early Christians live. And it is very significant, the way it is mentioned here, because it draws our attention and forces us to pause and reconsider what their new life, empowered by the Spirit, look like. So think about it for a second. Up to this point, nobody knew how to call this movement of people who believe in a man from Nazareth named Jesus, whom they believe is the Messiah, whom the Romans had killed, but whom they affirmed was alive. Nobody knew what to make of them. They didn't know what to call them, but what was clear was that they had a different way of living a disruptive way of living. One commentator puts it this way. He said, what the apostles were doing was quite simply to live in a completely new way. Nobody had lived like this before. This was a way of life, as we say, that people had not ever tried. In fact, nobody had ever imagined it. So, if we go back and forward and we read the book of Acts, we know that it involved living as a family with those who share their life, their, their faith, I'm sorry, in Jesus. It includes eating meal to, meals together 
during the week, every week. That's weird. It shouldn't be weird. They seem to have a different set of priorities. They had a different attitude toward personal property characterized by generosity and a sense of responsibility toward the poor, particularly the needy among, among them. They pray together. They talk about Jesus and his kingdom during the meals and whenever they could. They spoke and shared the good news of Jesus with other people. They were willing to risk their life, and they rejoiced when they suffer. Now, I don't want to give the impression that they live perfect lives as followers of Jesus. But these characteristics were evidences of their new life. Now, this makes me wonder, 20 centuries later, is Christianity still that disruptive? Or has the world found already a generic category where to put us? Their neighbors and co-workers still don't get it why we're so generous? Or why we're not so desperate to achieve some of the same goals they have in life? Do they wonder why we always have time for them in our agendas? Is Jesus and his kingdom still central to our daily conversations and to the way we see everything? Or are we no longer that disruptive? I wonder how much of this life do people see in me? I wonder how much my words about Jesus somewhat find correspondence in the way I live. But I know that for many of my neighbors and friends, the only thing they know about me in relationship to the faith I claim is that I go to church. And that's not disruptive enough. But how can we do it? How can we change? Where do we get the power to live like that? To live a... To lead a to live a disruptive way. Well, one of the things that stands out from this story is courage exhibited by the apostles. It's a main theme here, but it's also a recurring theme in the book of Acts. In this passage, they're thrown in, in prison, and after the angel rescues them, they go back to speak about Jesus in the public square. And then when the Jewish council tries to intimidate them, they speak bravely that they will obey God and not them. Their speech is very bold. And then after their flock, not only do they come out rejoicing, but then they do not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's where the passage ends. So this courage is, is highly significant because these are the same disciples that fled on the night when Jesus was arrested. So the question is, what happened between that type of disciples when Jesus was arrested and this type of disciples before the council? Something happened. Well, they actually tell us what happened. Verses 30, 31, and 32. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. What happened was the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the explanation Peter and the apostles keep going back to over and over. Jesus is the only explanation to their movement, their hope, their courage, their new life. Knowing him by the work of the Spirit as the one who died for them and as the one who is now alive forevermore 
and as the one who holds all authority on heaven and on earth, it was brought about this transformation in their lives and what could bring about transformation in our lives as well. Before the Jewish council, the apostles bear witness to the truthfulness of these events. They, they bear witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus as historical events. But in doing that, if you think about it, they were actually calling these religious leaders to repent and believe and be forgiven. Because it is not enough to know about it. You actually have to know him as the one who offers you forgiveness. And to offer you that, he had to be hanged on a tree in your place. The word tree in verse 30 is the Greek word eulon, which means tree or wood. But of course, it's a reference to the cross, and therefore, many English, English translations simply use the word cross. But there's actually another Greek word for cross, which is more specific, is the word stauro, and it is not used here. So I think the word, the use of eulon or tree is significant because it reminds us of an Old Testament passage that states that a man hanged on a tree is cursed by God. If you want to understand what the death of Jesus means, what he accomplished through it, and why he did it, you have to understand his death in light of this. In Galatians 3.13, the Apostle Paul actually explains it by saying, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He lived a life we should have lived, but we didn't. And on the cross, he took the curse that belonged to us to reconcile us to God. Today, perhaps you are pondering whether you can trust him by giving him your life. Or perhaps you are wrestling with your faith because of the circumstances you find yourself in. Or because God seems so distant or not answering your prayers. Or perhaps you just wish for courage to live a risky life for Jesus. Ask the Spirit to help you see Jesus and what he has done for you. The Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew tell us that when Jesus was on the cross about the ninth hour of the day, right before he died, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know the response that he got? He got silence. He was forsaken in our place so that instead of God's silence, we could hear his word of approval. You are my son. You are my daughter. I will not forsake you. I will not abandon you because I love you. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that indeed you did not abandon us in our mercy. Instead, you sent your son Jesus to rescue us. Lord, help us to receive the good news for ourselves so that we could live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.